those images are just stunning. Well, good, good morning to you. My name is Bill Walker. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'm the one who's always smiling. So you can tell Dennis and I apart because I'm the happy one, <laughs> or, or at least most of the time anyway. Uh, we have been on a journey together, and this journey, uh, if you haven't noticed, is almost like it's uphill into the wind. Uh, we've been talking about this thing called the good life, and the good life is, if you will, a life of following Jesus in loving obedience and doing good out of a heart that is becoming good in him. And we've been drawing all of these truths out of something called the Sermon on the Mount. It is the greatest message ever given by the greatest person who has ever lived. His name is Jesus. I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning. Uh, we are going to finish up uh, Matthew chapter 5 together today. Matthew chapter 5. And again, uh, it has been thus far a pretty arduous journey. Uh, actually, it's kind of like trying to scale the face of this cliff uh, is where we have been going. Because what we have been talking about is becoming free from anger and contempt, about God giving us a growing heart of peace. We've talked about becoming free from sexual lust and disgust, something that our culture is wholly caught up in, and actually having a growing heart of fidelity in those most important relationships. Uh, last week, we talked about becoming free from manipulation and self-protection. We talked about having a life of integrity. Well, the journey up till now has been pretty hard, but take heart. Today is the hardest part of it all. Uh, because we are about to enter into some words that Jesus Christ uttered that have been called the most challenging words you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. Today we are going to talk about a growing life of selfless love, becoming free from fairness issues, grudges, and payback. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking today in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, and it reads accordingly. You have heard that it was said, Jesus speaking, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him also have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. To the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, this instruction actually flows perfectly into the next, so we're going to cover both this morning. Jesus continued, You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that indeed you may prove to be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is what? It was not planned. I consider this part of God's sense of humor. I hope that that's the case. But on Memorial Weekend, we're talking about non-retaliation and loving your enemies. I didn't plan this. It just happens to be the case. Let's pray together, and then we will start to consider what's before us. Father God, um, you are a loving Father. You reach out in love toward us through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, and, and he reached out his arms as wide as they could go to die in our place to deal with our sin so that we could have this intimate relationship with you. And Father, we could never earn or deserve such a gift of relationship with the living God. But as a response from our hearts, you desire us to give ourselves fully to you in that we would begin to reflect you and reflect the very life of your son. Father, we're on a, all on a journey. Some of us have yet to get to that place of embracing Christ. Some of us has, have done so and are kind of in the initial stages of faith. Others have been walking this trail a long time. 
But in light of what's before us today, most of us have a long way to go. Help us to listen, I pray, with ears to learn and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, Father, amen. Amen. As we uh, begin, uh, I want to um, begin by asking a a simple question. Uh, But it's a very important question, and it's this. What would you say is the central feature or quality that best captures what it means to truly know God in an eternal and life-giving way? Or, let's put it a different way, if you could take all of the Scripture and the entire Christian experience and boil it down to one defining concept, what would that concept be? The interesting thing is, Jesus was approached on a couple of occasions, as we have recorded in the Scriptures, much the same questions. Not quite the way I worded it, but they are worded in a culturally sensitive way. Uh, And uh, we have one of those questions here later on in the Gospel of Matthew. And it says this in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't really like each other. They interpreted the law very radically different. But when you have a common enemy, it's amazing how you can get along. So these guys now grouped together, and they gathered to gang up on Jesus. And it goes on to say, and one of them was a lawyer. Now, this is an expert in the Mosaic Law. He was one who understood the Mosaic Law. He asked Jesus a question to test him. And this was the question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? What is the most profound truth in the Scripture? Later on, another lawyer would walk up to Jesus and ask him this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that would be true if I possess such life. So those questions are resonant in the scriptures. And both had the same answer. And this is how Jesus responded. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It is the great creed of Israel. It is called the Shema. And it says this, Hear, O Israel. That's the word Shema here in, in, in uh, Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. So Jesus is putting forward the great creed of Israel. They all knew this. And then he goes on to say this. This is the great and first command. But the second is like unto it, and this comes from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice how he ends this. On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is saying is this. The central feature or the quality or reality that best captures what the scriptures teach concerning what it means to know God in an eternal and life-giving way is what? I beg your pardon? You got it. Love. Love is the central core issue of the Christian experience. Love is the central core issue of a relationship with God. It is all about love. So the question now arises, and it actually was asked by a guy in Luke chapter 10, another lawyer, the one who said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus quoted, or these were quoted, and, um, and then his question was this, but who's my neighbor? You say, okay, I get it. It's love. Okay, love God, love your neighbor. But my question is, where do the boundaries of my neighbor lie? And so Jesus went on, and he gave this thing called the story of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. So Jesus telling a story he just made up about a very unfortunate fellow who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. As he was making his way along, he was beset by thieves. They beat him within an inch of his life, and they robbed him. He was left on the side of the road in a terrible condition. In Jesus' telling of the story, he then had two very religious people come along. One was a priest, one was a Levite. And the priest and the Levite, both seeing this man in this condition, they went around the other side of the road so as not to get involved. And you can come up with all the excuses you want for why they didn't get involved, but the reality is they didn't get involved. 
And uh, this guy was an Israelite. He was one of their own nation, one of their own people. And they avoided him. And then Jesus did the unthinkable. Unthinkable. He had the hero of the story be somebody that was a profound enemy of Israel. The man was a Samaritan, a half-blood, a half-breed. Somebody who didn't know the true God like true Jews did. They despised these people. And yet the Samaritan comes along and rescues this man and shows him great love. And Jesus asks the question, so who do you think was a true neighbor to this person? The guy said, I'm sure the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the name uh, Samaritan. You see, what Jesus was doing in that context is he was doing this. We like to think that our neighbor is no doubt our family, uh, and in that context, it would have been my family, probably my village, probably my tribal group, maybe even my nation. But my neighbor, somebody I'm supposed to love, can actually be my enemy? This was a profound thought in that day and age because that's just not what you do. You don't love your enemies. Everybody knows you kill your enemies. That's what you do, right? And Jesus was pushing the boundaries to the extreme here in our own lives. I love you, God, and I love my family. Uh, I, I love my, um, my neighbor. Uh, I, I love um, my, my neighborhood. I, 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 love, I love my social group. Uh, I, I even love my countrymen. But you want my love to extend to the very people who are the enemies of my people? This, some people believe, came out of the teaching we're looking at this morning. Found in Matthew chapter 5. Notice with me, as we draw attention to uh, this portion of Scripture, notice the command. This was the common understanding in that day and in that age. Uh, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this actually comes out of the Old Testament law. Uh, it is found in Leviticus chapter 24, and it says this in verse 19. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall, he be, given to, shall be given to him. This is kind of like the reverse of the golden rule. You know, the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do to you, but this is actually uh, you are to do to them as they have done to you. And so if they punch you and knock your tooth out, you punch them and knock their tooth out. If they break your arm, you have his arm broken. If you break a leg, you break the leg. If you gouge out an eye, you gouge out an eye. This seems very brutal, um, but actually it's not. Uh, it's actually something called lex talionis. Lex talionis means lawful retaliation lawful retaliation. It is a lawful punishment that corresponds in kind, in a degree, to the injury that has been inflicted upon you. The limit of, it limited the amount of payback, uh, and it was able to keep violence from escalating. And so what it did was basically took something that was an injury between two parties, drew it back into almost a, a, a law situation, and thus it pulled the emotion out of it, and it allowed, to, it allowed it to be rationally dealt with. So this was the common way in which Israel operated. By the way, it is the common way in which we operate today. Now, if somebody knocks my tooth out, I don't get the right to hit them and get their tooth. That doesn't how that work. So rather than having two people with two teeth knocked out, uh, they end up giving me some money from him, or he ends up doing a little time, or he ends up doing community service. That way it's beneficial to other people, and he doesn't just lose his tooth. So we've modified this over the years, but it's basically the same co concept. Lex talionis, it is about fair, fairness and justice. But the question is, what about the follower of Christ? Are we to demand fairness and justice just like the law required? Well, let's go on to see what Jesus has to say. That is the command. And now we have what I would call Jesus' clarification of the command, God's intent or the heart of God uh, concerning these things. This is how the followers of Jesus Christ are to respond. And so what Jesus says is this, but I say to you, do not resist 
the one who is what? You're going to be kidding. That's not fair. That's not just. What do you mean, don't resist them? I'm not sure I understand Jesus. Well, just in case you're not exactly sure what he's talking about, he goes on to actually give us four ways in which he wants you to understand this. Uh, the first one is this one here. It says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him what? Okay, so if you're going to slap somebody on their right cheek and they're standing opposite of you, then that means you would take your left hand and slap them. Now, in that context, a slap was a huge insult. People would rather be whipped than to be publicly slapped in the face because that was the worst kind of insult you could give. But if you're going to slap somebody on the right cheek, that means you're going to use your left hand. In the Eastern culture and Near Eastern culture, the left hand was not used for social intercourse. It was only used for hygiene issues. So it was a double form of insult here. Not only did they slap you, but they slapped you with the left hand. This is horrific. You can't imagine something much worse than this. And yet the response is what? I'm sorry. And the response is what? How often? How often? How often? We'll talk more about that in just a minute. To what extent should we take what Jesus is saying? Here we go. Here's the next one. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, uh, the general garb of a poor person uh, included an internal linen garment as well as a cloak, which was generally made of wool. It was generally warm. Uh, a lot of the poor people wouldn't have homes to live in, so they were forced to sleep outdoor in the elements. And so this cloak was actually part of their actual sur survival. So according to the law of Moses, you could actually sue somebody for their linen garment. You could take their tunic, but you were not allowed to take their cloak because that would jeopardize their very lives. In fact, there's actually a couple places where you can keep your internal uh, underwear, I guess you could call it, the tunic, uh, and then you could actually give your cloak as a promissory note, but the one you gave it to had to give it back to you by nightfall so that you could wear it. So there's a lot of mercy in, in this, this law. And so what Jesus is saying is this, if they take you to court and they take your underwear, um, let them also have your, give them that which protects you. Don't hold anything back. Give it all to them. Okay, Jesus, this is getting extremely uncomfortable. Uh, if, but he doesn't stop there. He goes, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him how many? Okay, um, this is basically the idea of being conscripted. Uh, the Romans were in the nation at that time, and they could come along at any point and say, hey, you, you, yeah, you over there, come here. And they could give you their stuff and make you carry it for them. The, the Jews hated the Romans for this. In fact, there was a guy by the name of Joseph, Joseph uh, no, Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, as Jesus was carrying his cross, he couldn't carry it any further. So he said, you, over here, carry it. He was conscripted. And so that's the idea here. In fact, the word forces you actually comes from a Roman legal term. So if anyone conscripts you to go with them one mile, against your will, how, how far do you go with them? Or, could it be three? Could it be four? Could it be more? Okay. And then he ends with a statement. Uh, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, it's talking about extreme generosity. Extreme generosity. Um, Jesus, in this section, is using uh, a little hyperbole at this point. Do you remember back when he talked about lust, plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand? He wasn't being literal there. If you actually kind of took what he's saying here, what you have is somebody who has red cheeks, buck naked, walking two miles, carrying somebody's gear, and somebody asks them for help, and they've got nothing to give. So, in effect, Jesus is kind of going over the top with this example. He's trying to make it seem extreme. But what's his point? What is his point? And his point is this. Those who follow me and choose to identify with me should expect persecution, and our response is not to demand our rights but to show risky, self-sacrificing love, unexpected love, courageous love, subversive love, 
You see, it is love that truly defines who we are. It is this extreme love of God and neighbors and enemies that is meant to mark us out as the true followers of Christ and children of the Father. But, Pastor Bill, what about... Dot, dot, dot. Pastor Bill, you know... You know, what about in the situation where I find myself dot, dot, dot? And let me give you the answer. I don't know. This much I do know. You should not respond with what you would normally do. That's your old nature recoiling and reacting, and that would not honor God. But let me also go on to say this, that it's not enough simply to expect fairness and justice. That's the way the world deals with things. To be a follower of Christ actually means we go beyond the issue of fairness and justice to love, to an extreme. And I don't know what that means in any given context. But this is, this is what you have. These are the resources that belong to you that you should look into and try to understand in your situation, how do I honor Christ and how do I become true salt and light in a world that is unpalatably dark and lost? You have the resource of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. As a child of God, the Spirit of God lives in you, and the Spirit of God's job is to direct you. The second resource you have is the Word of God. The Word of God. Do you remember what Jesus said just a little bit ago um, about, about the Scriptures? Do you remember what he said? He said basically this, that the Scriptures all hang on two things, how to love God and how to love others. All of the scriptures hang on that. If you will, this could either be uh, the controlling application out of every Bible study. This should be the controlling application out of preaching and teaching. This should be the controlling application when you're reading in the scriptures in the morning. How do I love you more, Father? How do I love my neighbor? How do I love my enemies? The scriptures are built around that. I love what a man by the name of Augustine said, a great church father concerning this part of the scriptures. He said this, if it seems to you that you have understood the divine scriptures or any part of them in such a way that by this understanding you do not build up this twin love of God and neighbor, then you have not understood them. So in a very real way, the controlling ethic, the controlling almost hermeneutic of the scriptures is how does this help me to love God more? How does this help me to love my neighbors more? That's what the scriptures are for. So as we find ourselves in whatever situation we find ourselves in, we need to be asking ourselves, Spirit of God, direct me in this. Word of God, show me, where do I go? Father, speak to me. And then we have this thing called the body of Christ. We're here to help each other work on these hard issues of living out the Christian life in very difficult circumstances. Don't just go with whatever feels right. Search the scriptures and know what the Father wants. And I can guarantee you this, it will generally be what you don't want. Because our human nature is such that it's contrary to much of what the Word of God asks for us to be doing. So this is the reality. I don't have all the answers, but I know that this, between the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God, you will find your answer as to how God wants you to react and act in any given situation to honor Him. You see, we cannot respond like the world. The world clamors for vengeance, but we show mercy. Why? Because we've been shown mercy in Christ. You see, the world demands justice, but we show forgiveness. Why? Because we have been forgiven in Christ. The world cries out that people need to get what they deserve. And yet we show grace. Why? Because we've been shown grace. The world hates and it wants to hurt and kill. But we are to show love even to the most unlovely and unlovable and undeserving. Why? Because we have been shown that kind of love by God. And it is that kind of life that is ultimately salt and light in a tasteless, unpalatably dark and sinful world. And it is so profound it is so rare, 
It is so remarkable. It can only come from God himself. Moving right along. We're now into that next section. The command. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor and what? That's not in the Old Testament, by the way. This was a common statement of the times. You will not find this statement in the Old Testament. You will discover that you are to love your neighbor, uh, and they interpreted that to mean Jewish people. Uh, and thus, we hated everybody else. And hence, they had this statement, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Just think about that. That seems reasonable. They hate me. It seems appropriate to return the favor, right? And yet, notice what Jesus goes on to clarify. That statement of that day was an error. This is the true intent of God. This is the true heart of God. But I say to you, love your how many? Oh my goodness. We went from one now to a whole group. You see, I was supposed to hate my enemy, the guy who hates me. But now the, the, the turnaround is I'm now supposed to actually love this people group. Whoa. Wow. All of a sudden, this gets more challenging. Jesus just keeps upping the ante. And not only am I supposed to love them, I'm supposed to what? That's right. That's proactive. That's good. This is doing good. Remember, if we're going to glorify our Father which is in heaven, we have to do that by doing good works. This is how the Father is glorified. This is how the Father ultimately gets the glory due his name through his children. And it, it says this, so that, that's, that's a purpose construction, that so that you may be, be known as the sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is how we prove who we really are the follower of. If we merely live out of our old nature like the rest of the world, who knows who you follow? But when you respond in, in a kind of love that is not human but superhuman, that is not natural but supernatural, all of a sudden you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt who you belong to. Because God is a God of great generosity, great mercy, and he is not a respecter of people. For he, the Father, makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Then he goes on to say this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Think about that. I love you. I love you, Bill. Thank you. That's awesome. I hate you, Bill. My natural inclination is, I love you. You see, the world lives like this. Even, even tax collectors do the same thing. They were considered unscrupulous in their day. They were considered not followers of, of God. And he goes on to say this, and if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do exactly the same thing. So this is how the world lives. You like me, I like you. You hate me, I hate you. You punch me, I'm going to punch you back. You want me to walk a mile with you? Well, uh, to you. That's how the world responds. But what makes us different? How do we become salt and light in a dark and unpalatable world? By love. By love, a love for God that overflows to love for neighbors and even those neighbors who are my enemies. There is no mistaking who you're connected to when that happens. And besides, Jesus wouldn't preach something or teach something that he himself was not willing to do. In fact, when Jesus Christ was arrested, falsely tried. He didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't defend himself. Uh, Jesus Christ ultimately was crucified on the cross. Do you remember how he responded to the people who were crucifying them? His statement was this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is how Jesus responded to this injustice, to this infraction against himself and his humanity. How could he do that? How could he do that? I love what Peter says. Notice what Peter says. It says, when they were hurling their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did he do? Read it. The Father knows. The Father knows. And this was part of God's plan for his life. The Father knows. And someday, true justice will be executed. The Father knows. And Jesus committed himself to the Father's hands in this matter, not not defending himself in this matter. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul picks up on these these ideas and then gives them to the church. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which, was also, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, oh my goodness, he's God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He just let go of that. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, being, by humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Let this mind be among you. But how? But how? Well, listen to what Paul has to say. Let's not just end it there. The same way Jesus did. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of... He knows. He knows. Injustice is ultimately his. You see, we have this temporal form of justice, and it works as best it can in this day and age. And the government has, has been given the sword by God to exact vengeance and justice on earth. The church and the child of God has never been given the sword. We've been given the cross. So ours is not to execute justice. Ours is to show mercy. Ours is to show forgiveness. That is our calling as followers of Christ. Ultimate justice will be done at the, at the judgment seat of God. Nobody's going to get away with anything. But so long as there's life and breath, there's hope that they will find their sins judged in Christ and not eternally apart from Christ. So, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you believe him? Is he good for that? Oh, my goodness, he is. But rather, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed him. If he's thirsty, I want you to give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning clothes on his head, which means you'll, you'll bring a form of repentance to him because they feel guilty for doing this to you because you're not responding like everybody else does. Do not overcome evil. Oh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by what? Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is salt, this is light. This is what Jesus is talking about. There should be a few questions in your heart and mind right now. First of all, who even does this? <laughs> does anybody live like this? I just want to say it's very rare. It's very rare. And then the second question is, how is this even possible? Let me answer those two questions with the time we have remaining this morning. Who acts like this? Who, who responds like this? Who deals with stuff like this? Well, I have two examples for you this morning. One of them, one you're very familiar with, the other one not so much. The first one I want to give you is what transpired uh, at the Emmanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, just about a year ago, on the evening of June the 17th, 2015, during a prayer service, 21-year-old Dylan Roof shot and he killed nine people in a prayer service on a Wednesday night. And so um, he shot them, he killed them, and then um, he fled, and he was subsequently arrested, and within hours after this tragedy, he was brought uh, in, in jail garb, and he was on a monitor, and a few of the folks from the congregation got a chance to address him. Put yourself in their place. Your loved one has just been murdered in your church. How would you respond? Ready, sir? I am. In shackles and wearing prison stripes, gunman Dylan Roof walks into his first court appearance with little fanfare or emotion. His image broadcast via a video link from the detention center into a North Charleston courtroom. On the other side of the screen, off camera, 
relatives of the innocent victims. Before we go into the bond process, I would like to ask, are there any members, or is there a representative of any of the family that would be here that wish to make a statement before this court, before I post or uh, set the bond? Through tears, some of them spoke. I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. Your name. That was but one of many people who came in and made much the same uh, statement in great grief and anguish and expressed to him forgiveness and mercy. That is so rare. The whole world was watching and everybody's like, how do they do that? How do they even go there? I, I am so, so in, in, in awe of the pastor of this congregation. Uh, he is here. He was shot and killed that night. Uh, he is a state senator uh, on the, uh, the state level. His name was, probably it still is, Clementa Pinckney. This man was able to educate his congregation and his people so when a tragedy struck, their natural response in Christ was to say, I forgive you. As painful as this is, I forgive you. I, I'm in awe of this man. This would be my heart's desire for you. This is my heart's desire for you. I'm going to be mowing his lawn in heaven, okay? This guy's amazing. I just want to say this right here and right now. If somebody were to walk in here and start shooting, please hear me. And I go down, maybe Dennis goes down. Um, we have folks, we have a lot of law enforcement that are in this facility, and some carry a weapon on any given, week, any given Sunday. Please do not use deadly force. Put him down, stop him, but don't shoot to kill. That's not what we're here for. We are here to mourn the loss of believers, but actually to rejoice because they're in the presence of Christ. But that person needs Christ, and that dominates everything. So with that understanding, please, if you're here, um, part of the church's security, do not shoot to kill. Put them down. That is one instance so if I go down, rejoice with me, for I'm stepping into the presence of Christ, and I could have no greater time. Do not take a life in my name, please. So there's that. Very rare, very unique, very outstanding. Here's another one that I found to be absolutely, oh my gosh. It actually happened uh, back in 2013, uh, and it happened in Egypt, of all places. Uh, this is the Nile Delta, and down here is the Nile River. It happened in this city right here. It's called Almenia. Almenia. It's a beautiful city, uh, about a quarter of a million people. It straddles the Nile River, and so part of the city is on one side, part of the city is on the other. Uh, the city is divided almost completely 50-50 between Muslim and Coptic Christian. Muslim and Coptic Christian. And so on the evening of August the 14th, 2013, the Muslim Brotherhood went throughout much of Egypt firebombing churches. One of the churches that was firebombed was a church in this city. And the church was called the Prince Tadros Coptic Church. It stood in the city center and uh, was the gathering place for many um, um, Orthodox Christians of the Coptic uh, viewpoint, and uh, they destroyed the church completely. Uh, once you look inside, the roof is gone, lots of rubble, lots of, lots of difficulty, lots of hardship, lots of mess. You know, in, in, a, in an Orthodox context, if you want to ultimately slap somebody and humiliate them, you burn their church. Churches are a focal point. It's where life happens. And you burn the church, and you're not only showing disparage to the people, but also to their religion and to Christ. And they had an affront. And they wrestled with, how do we respond to our Muslim neighbors? How do we respond in the middle of the Middle East to this great tragedy? This is what they decided. They wrote on their doors that would lead into this compound, 
where this happened in Arabic, these words, love your enemies. And then they did something today. They put together a video, a video of the church members standing in the burned out hull of their church, explaining why they chose to respond this way. Take a second, watch what they had to say. It is very powerful. does that? Ardent followers of Jesus Christ, those who understand that the greatest thing that we can do to evidence the Father is forgiveness, mercy, and love in the face of injustice and indignities. You know, I'm afraid that we have turned uh, the scriptures in America into nothing more than an academic pursuit. We have made somehow knowing God means we know about him and that we can answer all the questions on some kind of entrance exam we're going to get when we get to heaven, you know? We even kind of prep people. We say, I have two evaluating questions for you. Um, if you were to die today, uh, are you sure that you would go to heaven? 
Uh, I think so. Okay, let me ask you this question. So if, if, if you're standing before the gates of heaven and God the Father was looking out at you and say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Open sesame, Jesus. That's what we make it. Jesus is somehow the key to heaven, and it's not a living relationship with him that radically transforms our lives. We have been given the righteousness of Christ as a gift, but it's meant to be worked out into our lives so that we are righteous. We do what's right. We do what's good and best. Do you know you can know it all and totally miss heaven? Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. They memorized the entire Bible in their day. They knew every word, and they weren't going into the presence of God. Why? Because they missed the relational part. Paul, the apostle, the great intellect that he was, reminds us, I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if I do not have love, I am nothing more than a no noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so even to move mountains, but I do not have love, what does he say? I'm nothing. The central core issue of the Christian's existence is a love for God that spills over to love to neighbor and even enemy, ultimately enemy. Nothing shows the reality of our development and growth in Christ than that. In fact, I've already given away everything I had and delivered my body up to be burned. If I have not love, I have gained zip. This is the core issue. Jesus was hammering this. I just want you to know how important this is. So the other question is, Pastor Bill, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Okay, love, love, love God, love neighbors, love enemies. How? How? Jesus tells us how. Here you go. That's how. Now, a lot of folks don't like this. <laughs> and so what we do is we try to soften the word perfect to something like mature or complete. The word is actually used, teleos, in other parts of the Bible in that kind of translation, but I don't think it fits here. Because it's contrasting us with God, or actually comparing us with God. While God is mature and God is complete, God is very much perfect. So Jesus is saying, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We have been given the perfect righteousness of Christ to have a relationship with the Father. But I want you to know the stated goal of the Father's desire in your life is found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. He has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son who is, you got it. God's intent in our lives is that we be perfect. And that's the journey of life. That's what we're talking about. We're moving in that direction if you're his. I like what C.S. Lewis has to say here. Good old C.S. He said this, The command to be ye perfect is not idealistic gas. I like that. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures who can obey that command. We can do this by the grace of God. And it's his desire that we do. This verse, be ye perfect as, as your Father in heaven is perfect, is what is called a hinge verse. It connects everything that has gone prior to this into what is about to come next. How do you be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect? Let me show you how this works. The hinge verse is verse 48, and so it leads into what we're going to begin to look at next week, the interior of the good life, and it is about a secret life of holy habits, worshiping our Father. You see, the only way to become perfect like our Father is to spend time in his perfect presence, and as we do so, we end up reflecting and becoming more and more like him. So Jesus is going to talk about when we give to the needy, do it in secret before your Father who is in heaven. When you pray to your Father, do it in secret. And when you fast to focus on your life in him, do it in secret because your Father in secret will see you in secret and he will reward you. Jesus is now taking us into how we now live out the very things we've been talking about. And it comes from being in the presence of the Father.
in an ongoing, personal, relational way. Apart from that, we will simply react out of our human nature or we'll demand exactly what our society wants and we will never be true salt and light in a lost and dying, unpalatable world. So who lives like this? Virtually no one. How do you live like this? By getting closer to your father. Let me just end with this and I am done. Who is the enemy in your life? that God is calling you to selflessly love? Who is the enemy in your life that God is calling you to selflessly love? Is it a spouse? Is it a child? Is it a parent? Is it a coworker? extended family, the next-door neighbor. I don't know. You know. That person who gives you that, that creepy feeling every time you're around them. That person that you, you just can't wait to see somebody hurt. You just can't wait till they get their comeuppance. That person. That person. Let me just give you three quick thoughts, and I will pray for us. When you get that person in mind, I want to admonish you to pray for them. First, pray for God's heart for them, for yourself, and pray that they will be receptive to God's love for them. Secondly, serve them. Serve them in humility and take the low position of a servant just like Jesus and do good no matter what their response may be. And then lastly, persevere. Persevere. The last selfish need that most of us possess before Jesus fully possesses us is self-preservation. When you're willing to give that up, Christ fully has you. He can do whatever he wants with you and you will ultimately glorify God. Persevere. Take up your cross daily and follow him and don't stop doing good. Don't stop praying because God will be honored and that person might know Christ. And all God's people said, let's pray. Well, Father, we did it. Uh, we scaled the last few feet, the steepest part of the climb, and it's been a hard climb. But I'm glad to know that you're not only on the other end of the rope, but you're actually encompassing us and you're under us and you're urging us and you're helping us all the way along. Father God, um, I pray right now for those folks who have somebody in mind that is, if you will, their enemy, somebody that's extremely hard to love. I pray that you would give them your grace and your heart toward that person and that in prayer, in service, and in persevering, that that life might be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.